listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This morning's scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next, he sent another slave. That one also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third. This one also they wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, heaven forbid, But he looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. Thanks, Jim. Good morning, everybody. Oh, man. So, you guys, this is it. We have been journeying together through the parables of Jesus uh, since August now, um, and this is the last one. This is it. This is the end of this series. These parables have taken us from, like, the heat and humidity of summer to the snow and frigid temperatures of early fall. Um, <laughs> this, the, we have come a long way um, in this series, and this is the last one. Um, next week, we're actually going to have a guest preacher here, and I want to encourage you all to come. Um, I know it's uh, pretty standard practice in most churches that when the pastor gets a week off, the congregation kind of takes a week off, and I get that. I do. Um, I will be working, though. I'm going on study leave next week to prep uh, sermons and teaching series for Advent and the New Year, um, so I will be working. You don't have that uh, excuse anymore. Um, but our guest preacher is actually going to be a friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, actually, Chris O'Brien. Uh, he's visited our church with his family a couple times. He is a fellow professor turned pastor. Um, he's a Western New York native, New Testament professor at Roberts and at Fuller Seminary out in California, where I come from. Um, he's also a Methodist minister, and I met Chris out in California. We did our doctorates together. He's a really good guy. Um, somehow God saw fit to call us both to Western Monroe County. I'm not sure what the plan was there. Um, But he'll be filling the pulpit next week. Uh, I want to encourage you to come check that out. It's going to be a great time. Our passage for today is an appropriate one to end this series on, I think. Um, This is the last major parable in Luke's gospel. There's like a tiny parable in the next chapter, Luke 21. But this is really the last major parable Jesus tells in the gospel of Luke. And it is a doozy. Let me tell you that. 
Um, We got violence, betrayal, intrigue, murder, basically all the best stuff on HBO with none of the sex, which, like, what else do we come to church for on a Sunday morning? Am I right? The backdrop of this parable is is, um, pretty dark, actually. Um, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem after ignoring the pleas of everybody who warned him not to go there because the people there want to kill him. Foreshadowing. He goes anyway, he's in the city, he's in Jerusalem, and at this point, Palm Sunday has already happened, the hosannas, the laying down of palm branches, he rides on a donkey, that all happened already. Jesus has just done his, um, his uh, performance in the temple where he flips over tables and chases out the money changers, that all just happened, and not surprisingly, the religious establishment is already looking for ways to get rid of him. Um, At the end of chapter 19, uh, right before this one, verse 47, we read this. Every day, Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. Then at the end of our passage, which Jim just read, verse 19, this point gets reiterated. When the scribes and chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. So the backdrop for this story is crystal clear. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and the religious establishment wants him dead. So Jesus does what anyone would do in this situation. He tells a story. He tells a parable about a vineyard owner who leases out his vineyard to tenants. But these tenants are wicked. And when the harvest comes, the vineyard owner sends servant after servant to the tenants to collect his share of the crop. But one by one, they're beaten and sent away. Until finally, he sends his son, his beloved son, the heir of the vineyard, and the tenants kill him. I think we'd say that's a bit on the nose, right? Like Jesus isn't really holding anything back in this one. You don't have to read between the lines too much to see what he's getting at. He's using this violent, tragic story to call out the religious leaders to their faces quite explicitly and let them know that he knows exactly what they're planning to do. Now, there is some symbolism in this parable. We've talked about this in previous weeks. The parables are all very symbolic. Um, The tenants aren't really the tenants. The vineyard's not really a vineyard. There are deeper ideas at play here. Um, Sometimes the metaphors we find in parables are really open to interpretation. But then other times, like in this example, the context makes it pretty clear what Jesus is getting at. The vineyard is a stand-in for God's people. The tenants are the leaders of the people, and the vineyard owner is God. With this story, Jesus is actually picking up on some imagery that was really common in the Old Testament, in his Bible, uh, that would imagine God's people as a vineyard and God as the owner. Um, There's a lot of examples of this. The most famous one is probably Isaiah chapter 5. Um, We have a Bible study at church here on Tuesday afternoons at noon. It's like a lunch hour Bible study. We looked at the opening chapters of Isaiah back in the spring, so this will be familiar to some of you. But in Isaiah 5, we find this metaphor of God's people as a vineyard and God as the owner. And one day, God goes out to gather grapes from the vineyard. But God finds that the grapes are rotten. They've gone wild. This is what we find in Isaiah 5. It'll be on the screen. 
God expected his vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. Any Tuesday afternoon Bible study people ringing a bell? See a couple nods. Excellent. Jesus is tapping into this ancient oracle of judgment, this vineyard metaphor, and he's remixing it to call out the religious establishment of his day. They're the tenants overseeing God's people, but their hearts have grown cold. Their religion is corrupt. These leaders are so obsessed with maintaining their own power, their own control, that they are now plotting to kill the Son of God. The context is pretty clear, and the application of this parable back then is pretty clear, but what do we do with a story like this today? Is this just like a historical artifact? Is this just like a strange little story where Jesus predicts his death? Or might this have some wisdom that we can still glean 2,000 years later? Do we see any examples of corrupt religion today? Any leaders in the church or in society who are so obsessed with maintaining control, they miss out on what God is actually up to? Does that still happen anymore? Nodding good. Yes, it does. Excellent. Excellent. Um, You know, it's kind of wild. It's been about 2,000 years since this story was told, and very little has changed. Over two millennia, we've seen the rise and fall of countless um, new corrupt systems of power, oppressive religious hierarchies, broken political structures, many of which have enjoyed the full support and backing of the church. The followers of Jesus, us. Jesus, who was a first century rabbi who called out those kind of structures, we have in turn repeatedly missed out on what God was up to by aligning ourselves with them. This story should trigger some introspection, I think. Because like it or not, we're part of this too. We're part of the church. As much as we might badmouth the church um, while excusing our own particular brand of it, you know, badmouth organized religion broadly, but imagine that our version of it's somehow different, We're all complicit in this to some extent. There's not a person in this room who hasn't benefited in some way from some corrupt system or another. And so I think this, the the question this parable should lead us to wrestle with, the key question, is how do we stop ourselves from becoming the wicked tenants? How do we, as followers of Jesus, Make sure that our church, our structures, our systems of authority, our way of life don't blind us from seeing what God is doing in our midst. How do we prevent ourselves from becoming the wicked tenants? That's the question I want to wrestle with with you all today with the time we have left. And I think this parable gives us a few really good clues to answer that. First clue, we've got to learn to listen to the prophets the dreamers, the visionaries, the ones with the courage to speak hard truths, to call us out, the people who present us with a mirror that reflects the parts of ourselves that we'd rather keep hidden. 
We've got to listen to our prophets. In this parable, Jesus situates himself quite firmly in the prophetic tradition of Israel. Those servants who are sent repeatedly to the wicked tenants only to be rejected. Jesus puts himself in this tragic tradition as the beloved son, highlighting the fact that God's people have always rejected the prophets. This is nothing new. Most of the real estate in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds or so of our Bibles, was written by the prophets. Um, People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Amos, all these names we see in the table of contents in our Bibles. And almost all the prophetic figures in the Bible end up fearing for their lives at some point. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a prophet in Scripture who doesn't meet a grisly end at the hands of God's people. We have a long tradition of killing our prophets because we see them as a threat. Prophets speak divine truth in opposition to the world as it exists, the world as we've been taught to accept it. They ask hard questions. They tell stories like these that stretch our imaginations and clue us into the idea that maybe a different reality is possible. And we kill them for it. We'll honor them after they're gone. We'll name a federal holiday after them. We'll canonize their writings in our Bibles. But only after we've taken them out of the picture. One obvious example of this for me, if there's a modern prophet, if there ever was one, would be Martin Luther King Jr. We remember Martin Luther King as a hero, especially in a lot of predominantly white churches. This is especially true for our tribe, American Baptists, because he was one of us. We like to claim him. But we conveniently forget that King was hated by most white Christians in his day. And that's because he dared to speak truth to power. Dr. King had the audacity to proclaim God's justice to white Christians, to challenge us to actually listen to the words of Jesus. And we hated him for it. Heck, we killed him for it. In his own lifetime, King was called a communist, a socialist, un-American, a phony Christian. Now he's gone and we remember him as a saint, but we conveniently skip over a lot of that other stuff. How many of us rejected him and continue to reject people like him today? So we've got to listen to our prophets. The folks who dare to call the church and society to justice, the ones who awaken the better angels of our nature, the ones who challenge us to see the face of Jesus in people we'd rather ignore, If we're going to avoid becoming the wicked tenants, we've got to listen to our prophets. We have to attune our ears and our hearts to those challenging voices. Otherwise, we're going to reject them, and we'll end up rejecting Jesus in the process. So that's one thing. That's one takeaway. Listen to the prophets. Another is to realize that we are tenants in the vineyard, not owners. This is a big one. 
The problem at the heart of this parable is that the tenants in the vineyard, they want more than their fair share. They want to take over. They want to be the owners. And so when they see the opportunity to eliminate the heir of the vineyard, the son of the vineyard owner, they seize it. They kill him and seal their fate in the process. How often do we forget that we are tenants and not owners? There are so many ways we could apply this, like in the church, in society, but let's get like super concrete for just a second and talk about this church. Brockport First Baptist. Do we own this church? Or are we the tenants? This church is almost 200 years old. We're coming up on our bicentennial. We were founded in 1828, so it's less than a decade away. That's going to be a blast. That also means that this church has been here for longer than any of us, or at least most of us. <laughs> good, you're listening. That's good. <clears throat> now, it's been here longer than any of us, and I'm confident this church will be here long after all of us are gone. But how are we stewarding it in the meantime? How good of a job are we doing to ensure that this vineyard outlasts us? If you look around our church on an average Sunday, a day like today, you'll notice there's a number of generations underrepresented in this sanctuary. And it's not just like kids and young adults. We're arguably short on middle-aged people. You guys want to hear like a really scary statistic, like a heart-stopping one? One that keeps me up at night? An average of 8,000 churches close their doors every year just in the United States. 8,000. That's 20 a day. And the really sad, uncomfortable fact that a lot of people are too polite to acknowledge is that a lot of those churches need to close. When a church stops serving its community and welcoming new people, when a church stops embodying the gospel and becomes insulated from the realities beyond its walls, when a church starts worrying more about maintaining the structure, keeping the wheels turning, um, holding on to what it has, when preserving the past becomes more important than expanding into new territory and reaching new people, that's when it's time to close up shop. That's when you know it's over. And I have worked with dozens of pastors and churches in my work before coming out here out in California uh, as a professor and advisor to doctor and ministry students. I'm very happy to say that we are not at that point. We're doing pretty well, all things considered. This is still a church that cares deeply about its community, and we've made some huge strides this last year and a half to engage that community and welcome new people. I'm confident that in the next five to ten years, Brockport First Baptist is going to emerge as one of the best churches in Brockport, one of the churches that is the most deeply engaged with its community, one of the churches that is the most adept at welcoming new people, being inclusive, welcoming new families and individuals embodying God's kingdom in this community. But we've got a lot of work to do, you guys. If we were, like, really skilled at welcoming young families, if we had, like, nailed that and figured it out, they'd be here already. If we were, like, if we had, if we had just nailed it on um, reaching, like, the college community, the students, professors, administrators, staff, faculty, 
who make up half the population of this village nine months out of the year, if we had like knocked that out of the park, they'd be here already. So we've got work to do. I've had at least eight or nine conversations this last year and a half um, with families who visited our church once or twice and then never come back. Those yellow cards I waved around earlier. And it's always the same conversation every time, and it kind of rips my heart out every time. They love the community they see here. They love how friendly and welcoming we are. They like the children's programming we offer. They even like the preaching, or they're just too polite to tell me (laughs) otherwise. But they're looking for a church that's more family-oriented. I hear that over and over again. A worship experience that's more inviting, upbeat, kid-friendly. And then I heard through the grapevine earlier this week, there's a handful of folks at our church, and, and the folks who told me this didn't name names or anything like that, so I have no idea who they're talking about. But apparently there's some people here who avoid coming to worship on the fourth Sunday of the month because it's family Sunday when the kids lead us in worship. There are some of us who like the noise, the disorder, the insanity, the, the cacophony of children leading worship just takes us right out of it. And here's the thing, I'm a pastor, so like, I can't say what I would like to say to that <laughs> because it wouldn't be Christian of me. But man, I really think some of us need reminding that this is not our church. This is not my church. This isn't your church. This is God's church. We're tenants. We are stewards here. We're not the owners, and we will be judged. This church will rise or fall based on how we steward this vineyard for the next generation. We get the privilege of being part of this community for a blip. A few years, a decade, maybe a lifetime if you're really lucky, And we've got to use that time to empower this church to reach the next generation. That's what being good tenants looks like. We can't just do things because that's the way it's always been done. We can't let fear of losing what we have stand in the way of reaching this community with the gospel. Because this isn't our church. We're just the tenants. And our job is to serve the owner. One last takeaway, as if that wasn't enough. One last point. Sermon, there's got to be three points. One last point, one final principle to ensure that we don't become the wicked tenants. We have to have the foresight to imagine ourselves as the villains before we villainize someone else. This story, The Wicked Tenants, this actually has a bit of a dark history uh, in the church that we haven't touched on at all. I'd be remiss, though, not to at least make some mention of it. Jesus told this parable to call out the religious and political establishment of his day, but that's not how most Christians have read it for 2,000 years. If you look at verse 16, which we don't have on the uh, screen, you'll have to look in your Bible. Verse 16, when Jesus says the vineyard owner is going to destroy the tenants, give the vineyard to someone else, take it away from them and give it to new tenants. Do you know how that's been read historically by a lot of Christians? As a condemnation of Jews. 
We've imagined that the Jewish people are the old tenants. God's rejected them and given the vineyard to us. That's the ugly way a lot of Christians have read this. Scapegoating our Jewish friends, excluding them from the church. We took this story that should lead us to introspection and self-critique and use it to really empower ourselves and marginalize others. And I think there's a deeper problem at play here, and it's our tendency to imagine ourselves as the hero. Whenever we read the Bible, we want to think that we're the good guys, we're the disciples, we're Moses, we're David, we're the others that the vineyard is given to, we're the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, the hero of the story. That's us. problem is, if we're always the hero, it gets really easy to imagine our opponents as the villains. What if we start by imagining ourselves as the villain? What if we're bold enough, courageous enough, to entertain the notion that maybe we're the bad guys? Maybe in this situation, I'm the one standing in the way. Perverting justice, excluding my neighbors, missing the points. If we're courageous enough to do that, then we might just act to correct it. How many debates, how many arguments, how many church splits or outright wars could have been avoided if both sides would have just stopped for a moment and imagined themselves as the villains? We've got to imagine ourselves as the wicked tenants as painful as that is. Because if we can do that for just a moment before we scapegoat or villainize someone else, if we have that kind of foresight and self-awareness, then we just might learn to recognize the face of Jesus even in our own worst enemies. Let's pray. God, we confess that we have been the wicked tenants. We've let our own concerns, our pride, our prejudices invade our hearts, stopping us from seeing you. We've been led astray by the powers of this world when we should be focusing on your kingdom. So God, help us. Transform us. Use stories like this parable to awaken our hearts to new realities. The world as it could be if we followed Jesus as our king. This church as it could look if we realized that it didn't belong to us. Help us, Lord. Empower us to be faithful tenants and good stewards of the blessings you've given us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.